0: Good evening. A new day for undocumented immigrants, but private prisons are still the rule. Parole justice and the story of a 16-year-old exonerated in the murder of his mother in the Bronx in 1989. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durianza with the WBAI News for Tuesday, February 16th, 2021. The Federal Emergency Management Agency opened its first COVID-19 mass vaccination sites today, setting up in Los Angeles and Oakland, California, as part of an effort by the Biden administration to get shots into arms more quickly and reach minority communities hit hard by the outbreak. Snow and ice across much of the United States, meanwhile, forced the cancellation of many vaccination appointments and delayed vaccine deliveries around the country. Houston's public health agency lost power and had to scramble to give out thousands of Shots before they spoiled. Meanwhile, the winter storm that left millions without power in record breaking cold weather claimed more lives today, including three people found dead after a tornado hit a seaside town in North Carolina and four family members who perished in a Houston area house fire while using a fireplace to stay warm. The storm overwhelmed power grids and immobilized the southern plains and carried heavy snow and freezing rain into New England and the deep south, leaving behind painfully low temperatures. Windchill warnings extended from Canada into Mexico. In all, at least 15 deaths were reported. And in Washington, leaving Donald Trump and his impeachment in the rearview mirror, Joe Biden is embarking on a primetime moment tonight, a CNN town hall from milwaukee as the new president attempts to pressure republican lawmakers to support the massive relief package officials say already has broad public support the house expects to vote on the measure next week biden's trip to wisconsin a political battleground state he narrowly won last november comes as coronavirus infection rates and deaths are falling after the nation endured its two deadliest months of the pandemic And in international news, the European Court of Human Rights on Tuesday rejected a complaint against Germany's refusal to prosecute an officer who ordered the deadly bombing of two fuel tankers in northern Afghanistan in 2009. Scores of people died when a United States Air Force jet bombed the tankers hijacked by the Taliban near the city of Kunduz. The strike was ordered by the commander of the German base in the area who feared insurgents could use the trucks to carry out attacks. In fact, most of those swarming the trucks were local civilians invited by the Taliban to siphon fuel from the vehicles after they had become stuck in a riverbed. An Afghan man who lost his two sons, aged 8 and 12 in the airstrike, Abdul Hanan, took the case to the European Court of Human Rights after German authorities declined to prosecute the officer. Germany pulled its troops out of the base last year as part of the NATO mission in Afghanistan. About 1,100 German soldiers remain stationed in the nation, in the country. And the United States is mulling the deal made by Donald Trump to pull out U.S. forces from Afghanistan by May of this year. Earlier this month, a study group established by Congress recommended that Joe Biden extend the May 1st deadline set by his predecessor, Donald Trump, for withdrawing troops from America's longest war. But investigative reporter Eli Clifton says the commission was packed by advisers who have skin in the game.
1: People who have that type of experience in Afghanistan, the experience in government, from having been in the Obama and George W. Bush administrations, and the majority of them, over two-thirds of them, had effectively sort of gone through the revolving door after leaving the military service or after leaving the government, where they went to work in various shapes or forms weapons manufacturers. And many of them have continued to do that work or ended it quite recently, but are now seen as sort of the the gray beards or the blue ribbon panel who uh, offer the wisest, sagest wisdom to policymakers now. So this is a problem that I think it's not just a Democratic or a Republican problem. There's Democrats that want to get out of Afghanistan. There's Democrats that want to stay. There's Republicans that want to get out of Afghanistan. There's Republicans that want to stay. Donald Trump, I think, wanted to get out of Afghanistan. That's one of the reasons he committed to this timetable. But at the same time, there are some very very powerful interests, some of them ideological, and some of them driven by financial incentive. Of course, those things can overlap quite freely. Who would like to postpone a U.S. withdrawal from this two decades-long war?
0: How much do they actually spend? How many weapons do they expend money on?
1: It's around 2,500 U.S. troops in Afghanistan right now, and somewhere around like 6,000, 6,500, somewhere in between, contractors uh in Afghanistan. Now, of course, that's that's a small fraction of where they peaked at. I think in 2011, it was 100,000. Um, so the numbers have been really drawn down. We're talking about, really, the last remnant of the U.S. troop presence in Afghanistan. But- there's also this uh, concern, uh, and some of it's warranted, as the as the Taliban have been making inroads, taking various cities in Afghanistan. About what exact full U.S. withdrawal will look like, and how that will interact with the intra-Afghan talks and U.S. talks with the Taliban. A key question is what would postponing the withdrawal actually do? What could the United States potentially gain from it? And would it really change the course of Afghan politics? And that's something that especially senior advisors to this group, not those who are in the decision-making role, but senior outside advisors who are consulted actually had far greater concerns about than these 15 plenary members who had ties to the defense industry and had experience in government and in the military. These outside advisors, many of them voice exactly that concern, which is that can you negotiate an extension without ultimately having a deteriorating situation in terms of the actual potential for peace talks? And are you likely to get an actual different outcome from doing so? The Taliban are are clearly not going anywhere. The United States has tried. The negotiations are an acknowledgement of that, saying, all right, these are the people that have to be negotiated with. They are not going anywhere. And that a lasting peace in Afghanistan is going to involve them in one shape or form. And coming to terms with that is something that we've taken a very long time to do.
0: Investigative reporter Eli Clifton, his article, Weapons Biz Bankrolls Experts Pushing to Extend Afghan War, is on the blog ResponsibleStateCraft.org. Yesterday, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said she supported the idea of a congressional commission to look into the causes of the invasion of the United States Capitol on January 6th, where five died, including a police officer. Over 200 have been arrested for illegally entering and in some cases damaging the iconic building. Today, White House spokesperson Jen Psaki said President Biden likes the idea.
2: It's, of course, Congress's decision to form this commission, as we've talked about a bit in here. But it's, it's certainly one the president would support. President Biden has made clear his views on the tragic events of January 6th including where responsibility for them lies. He backs efforts to shed additional light on the facts to ensure something like that never happens again. In addition to the recently announced desire to put together a commission or form a commission, uh, we'll continue to work with Congress to identify measures that the federal government can take going forward to prevent violence we saw on January 6th. And as you know, there's a number of hearings that are upcoming in the coming weeks, and we'll be cooperative with those, of course.
0: And the White House spokesperson also touched on the Biden administration's plan to help millions of young, un, young undocumented immigrants living precariously in the United States under the DACA program.
2: Part of the proposal that the president outlined uh, and proposed on day one is an earned path to citizenship, right, for 11 million immigrants who are undocumented immigrants who are living in the country. He's also somebody who believes in the rights of the DACA recipients to be in the country. He was here during the. Of course, Obama-Biden administration, of which he played a prominent role, important role, and supported that program. We've outlined the tenets of what we think the proposal should look like, which includes that, but also includes funding to address the root causes, includes investment in smart security. But Congress will have to work through what it looks like moving forward. The approach of the prior administration was immoral, but also ineffective, in terms of addressing the many challenges of a outdated immigration system.
0: Although the Biden plan is a sharp departure from the punitive and just plain ugly policies of his predecessor, many activists say it doesn't break far enough from the previous policy. In a speech about criminal justice reform, Biden said he'd end the practice of using private jails to house prisoners in the country's massive prison system. But while well-received, Biden's comments left out the by far largest user of privately owned jails, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, known as ICE. ICE. Tomorrow is the Catholic observance known as Ash Wednesday. A group of peace activists with Pax Christi, New Jersey, will be marking the day with a vigil at Liberty State Park in New Jersey, as they've been doing for 25 years, calling for the closing of New Jersey's ICE detention centers. A spokesperson for the group is Kathy O'Leary.
3: Ash Wednesday is the beginning of Lent, and it's a Christian feast day. It is the beginning of... A season of repentance, it's 40 days of prayer and abstinence and reflection about things that you should be changing in your life and in in your world. So we think it's a really appropriate time for us to be reflecting on what it is about our society and particularly about New Jersey that even though we call ourselves this liberal, progressive state, where we value human rights, but we are incarcerating so many people for profit.
0: What's the background on that?
3: New Jersey has four detention facilities, all of which are incarcerating people for money. We have the Elizabeth Detention Facility in Elizabeth that's been there since 1994 and is run by a for-profit uh, company, Core Civic, but owned by a local business, Elberon Development Group, And the owners of that company sit on the boards of King University and NJPAC. And then we have the three county jails, Essex, Hudson, and Bergen County, all run by Democrats, but all who contract with ICE. And as of last year, last November, all of those folks were telling us that it was okay to keep those contracts because the Biden administration was coming and things would get better.
0: And the Biden administration did ban the use of privately funded jails for the alleged criminal population, but refused to uh, change things when it comes to immigration.
3: Yes. Discontinuance of the use of private prisons was only for contracts that were for the federal government, the DOJ. And that actually was a pitifully small portion of the actual total beds that private prison companies actually rent out the majority of what they rent out there's something around 30 percent of their business comes from immigration detention and then the balance of that comes from other local contracts with counties and and states as opposed to the federal government we're glad that he did it but it really doesn't make actually any difference at all in new jersey
0: what is the uh, alternative
3: if you believe in the rule of law we shouldn't have these places in the first place. These are civil infractions that people are being held for. They're being held indefinitely. So if you're held on a criminal charge, at least you know when you're going to be released. People who are held on immigration charges really have no idea when they might get out and whether or not they're going to go back to their family or whether they're going to be deported to a country that they maybe haven't seen in decades or don't even remember. There's really no place for these kinds of facilities as far as we're concerned
0: all right anything like to add
3: there's a new tone in washington which is is great the deportation flights are still continuing and we're particularly concerned about the deportation flights to haiti and to to cameroon these have been rightfully dubbed death flights
0: why death flights
3: haiti has never recovered from the earthquake, and then the devastating hurricanes, and now it is in political upheaval. We are deporting babies as young as two months old on these flights that are going to Haiti from the United States. Um, again, there's absolutely no humanitarian reason. <laughs> there is no reason in law that you can hold up to say that it's right or just to be deporting a two-month-old into a state of upheaval.
0: What about Cameroon?
3: Cameroon also uh, is in a very difficult political situation right now, and many of the people who are being deported are asylum seekers who are under threat of detention, disappearance, torture by their government. We are supposed to be this beacon of light and hope for the world. and We're going to be standing in sight of the Statue of Liberty tomorrow, and that is the promise that we claim to hold for the rest of the world, then we need to be living up to that.
0: Kathy O'Leary is a spokesperson for Pax Christi, New Jersey. Meanwhile, today, Shrove Tuesday, known as Mardi Gras or Fat Tuesday in New Orleans, is usually a time of celebration in the streets before Lent with a carnival and iconic parade. COVID has put the celebration on hold, but throughout the city of New Orleans, homes have been painted and decorated in Mardi Gras style, and the port city, known for its hard partying, is adapting to the new normal. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In New York, the criminal case against Amy Cooper, a white woman who called the police on a black bird watcher in Central Park and falsely reported that he had threatened her, was dismissed on Tuesday after Cooper completed a therapeutic program that included instruction about racial biases. In Manhattan Criminal Court, a senior prosecutor asked the judge to dismiss the single misdemeanor charge against Cooper, falsely reporting an incident, and the judge agreed. Ms. Cooper had faced up to a year in jail if convicted. Cooper's dispute with birdwatcher Christian Cooper, no relation, rocked New York City last spring after video of a highly agitated Cooper calling the police and falsely telling them that an African-American man is threatening my life went viral has been watched 45 million times not everyone was happy with the resolution eliza orleans a candidate for manhattan da tweeted the decision served to protect the privileged from accountability christian cooper has expressed sympathy for the woman he says there are more important issues to fight for racial justice And since the start of the pandemic, more than 5,600 people incarcerated in prisons have tested positive for COVID-19. Over a 1,000 in the past month, 32 incarcerated people have died of COVID. There are currently outbreaks of the virus at Bear Hill, Clinton, Franklin and several other correctional facilities. The People's Campaign for Parole Justice is calling on lawmakers in Albany to pass two bills that will address this pandemic behind bars and prevent similar tragedies in the future. Linda Perry has this report.
4: The two bills are Elder Parole and Fair and Timely Parole. Elder parole would allow the State Board of Parole to provide an evaluation for potential parole release to incarcerated people age 55 and older who have already served 15 or more years, including some of the state's oldest and sickest people who are behind bars. Fair and timely parole would provide more meaningful parole reviews for people behind bars who are already parole-eligible. In recognition of Black History Month, black community and faith leaders including formerly incarcerated advocates and their family members join legislators today for Parole Justice is Racial Justice Advocacy Day. The day organized by the People's Campaign for Parole Justice. It's a grassroots campaign backed by nearly 300 groups across New York State. They advocate for passage of the two bills, Elder Parole and Fair and Timely Parole. They also advocate for a fair and fully staffed parole board. Vincent Sutherland is executive director of the Center on Race and Equality at the NYU School of Law, supporting the People's Campaign for Parole and Justice. He spent 20 years representing people caught up in America's legal system, and he says parole justice is a struggle for racial justice.
1: Today in the state of New York, if you're white, you have a better chance of being released on parole than if you're black or Latinx. That's not justice. In this legislative session, we have the power to do something unprecedented. By passing fair and timely parole and elder parole, we can fundamentally change the parole system by making sure that everyone who appears before the board has a chance to be judged by who they are today and the work they've done to transform themselves. By fully staffing the parole board with commissioners committed to redemption, we can deliver parole justice for everyone. We have the opportunity to advance racial justice and meet the demands that we heard last summer, demands that echoed across our state from the streets of Brooklyn to the halls of power in Albany. I want to urge all lawmakers to stand with folks like Javari Brisport and support the People's Campaign for Parole Justice and pass these bills and give New Yorkers who are seeking parole justice what racial justice requires, a truly meaningful opportunity for release.
4: Senator Jabari Brisport decries cancel culture.
1: I think what makes me the most infuriated right now is uh, the continuous uh, shouts and cries from the the right and Republicans about cancel culture and cancel culture this and cancel culture that. And um, the way I see it, it's Black people who have been the ones that have been canceled. By the uh, criminal legal system and by mass incarceration, you know, black people, brown people, uh, when we get tangled with the criminal legal system, it's put us behind bars and throw away the key. White people are much more likely to get parole, Um, and there's this pervasive notion that white people are uh, worthy of redemption and black people, brown people, are irredeemable. So today, as you know, part of Black History Month. I'm really happy to be supporting these bills and getting my colleagues to support these bills.
4: Risport says he wants to build a criminal justice system that uplifts communities and brings them together. We know that we are not the sums of our worst mistake. Yes, b- yet black and brown
2: New Yorkers are made to feel as though they do not have an opportunity to change, as
4: though redemption is outside of their grip. Assembly member Carmen De La Rosa is lead New York State Assembly sponsor of Elder Parole. De La Rosa says it's no coincidence that the over policing scene in communities is directly related to disparities in the parole system. Today we join the
2: people's campaign for parole justice because we understand that if we're going to dismantle a system that is based on racism, we must pass elder parole. We must pass time and fairly parole because if we want to make sure that the system no longer continues to incarcerate people who look like me, people who
4: look like you, then we must reform this system from the inside out. The assembly member says she is sponsoring elder parole to ensure that the parole system is based on restorative justice and not on punitive justice for black and brown people in New York State. The People's Campaign for Parole Justice is also calling on Governor Andrew Cuomo to fully staff the parole board with 19 commissioners who come from communities that have been directly affected by mass incarceration and who have professional and clinical backgrounds in areas such as social work, nursing, reentry services, and other fields that allow them to evaluate people who are behind bars for who they are today. Linda Perry, WBAI News, New York.
0: Thanks, Linda. On Thursday, a state judge in the Bronx vacated the conviction, the 1989 conviction of Huey Burton, who at the age of 16 was charged in a tabloid-fueled case with murdering his mother. He spent 19 years in prison based on a confession that was thrown out of court and has sparked an investigation into the work of detectives in the South Bronx and the possible resisting of many more Uh, And the possible possibility, pardon me, of many more potentially false convictions. Burton, now 46, choked back tears as Judge Stephen L. Barrett ruled following a presentation by lawyers for the Innocence Project and the Bronx District Attorney's Office, with new evidence suggesting someone else killed Kaziah Burton and that detectives had used psychologically coercive interrogation techniques. In 1989, Burton's lawyer was famed attorney William Kunstler. His associate at the time was Ron Kuby, who helped overturn the sentence.
5: The... Then young man, youth, back in 1989, is Huey Burton, who's now a a much older man. Uh, He was 16 at the time. He was charged with murdering his own mother because she refused to give him money. I, I think it was she refused to give him money for drugs, and there was evidence of sexual molestation. And it was nothing peculiar to the Bronx. It was sort of peculiar to the times. A 16-year-old who would sexually molest and then murder his mother because she wouldn't give him money for his drug addiction. That's pretty much how the newspapers and television stations picked up with stories and ran with them. There was very, very little police investigation even though there was a a prime suspect it was not ewe burton and they went ahead and charged him on that basis and then he was just demonized and he was a monster and yet like all the other monsters you know this was another one of the cases that screamed you can't live in new york anymore there was that the brian watkins killing the central park five so many of those cases at that time some of which involved people who were actually guilty, Uh, many involved people who were completely innocent. But it was tabloid fodder then in in a way that we had never seen before in New York City. So after a very, 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 very long interrogation session uh, with Huey Burton, he ended up completely confessing to a crime that it was fairly obvious he didn't commit. And I say fairly obvious because there were inconsistencies in his account, his confession, and the actual evidence. He didn't tell the police anything the police didn't already know. One of the the things you look for in false confessions versus true confessions is, did the suspect give the police a genuine piece of information that they did not know? Like, where'd you hide the gun? I buried the gun outside the house. I'll take you to it. Okay, if you go and the gun is there, that at least means the suspect has given you a truthful confession. It may still have been coerced, but at least it was a truthful confession. On the other hand, when the suspect doesn't give you any piece of information that you don't know already, that's a a red flag for a false confession. Unfortunately... This was 1989. There was no science of false confessions. The, the studies that have been done over the past two generations didn't exist. So we didn't have a lot we could go on. Kunstler was the lead trial lawyer, and he did a great job. we tried to get the confession suppressed on all the grounds that would be supported by science today, but then were just supported by our word. And we tried to discredit the confession at trial but confessions tend to be uniquely powerful. And Huey was convicted, went to prison, got out quite some time ago. And then the Innocence Project, the Juvenile Innocence Project, which was an offshoot of the Grown-Up Innocence Project, picked up the case. A number of years ago, and fortunately I still had a big chunk of the file and I handed it over to them and they worked very closely with Darcell Clark and the um, Conviction Review Unit that had just been formed in the Bronx and eventually Huey Burton was exonerated. Darcell Clark gave a press conference. She basically said I'm not saying the police did things wrong, but By today's standards, they're wrong, but by the standards of the Times, that's what the cops did all the time. Which, of course, was completely true. Yeah, we all knew the cops did stuff like that all the time. But it wasn't okay then. It's not okay now. They just got away with it then. Which raised the question that Jan Ransom in her excellent New York Times piece raised, which is how many other... Bad convictions is this particular group of detectives tied to? And she raised that question, and hopefully, we'll be getting an answer sometime.
0: Ron Kuby was an attorney, along with William Kunstler, for Uwe Burton, who was exonerated by the Innocence Project in the murder of his mother in 1989. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, February 16th, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, for the WBAI News, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.